feel like I need to introduce myself for the first time. There's so many new faces here, and also I haven't seen many of you for so long. Uh, I'm Phil, Phil Duncalf. Some of you do know me, uh, those of you that aren't, aren't new. Uh, and if you've been watching on YouTube, maybe you recognize me, and I don't recognize you. But uh, I'm married to Tina, and we have a daughter, Rosalie, who unfortunately can't be here this morning. Uh, she isn't, uh, Rosalie isn't very well, unfortunately. She had a seizure on Friday, went to hospital, came back, and is still um, sort of recovering from that. So I'm a little bit tired. Uh, this is probably a little less prepared than I'd like, and it's a weightier topic than many. Uh, so your prayers as I, as I preach this morning would be appreciated. Um, for some reason, I mean, it's my choice <laughs> to choose a difficult psalm. Well, it's not a difficult, it's a hopeful psalm, but it covers some interesting topics that we'll cover this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll see what God does. Heavenly Father, would your spirit fill us this morning? Would we be able to hear your word for what it says, Lord, help us to break free of any assumptions or preconceptions that aren't of you? As we read this text, would it challenge us? Would it give us hope? Would it help us see life that you offer through Christ? Lord, I pray that as I preach that they would be your words Anything I say that isn't of you would be uh, just forgotten and left. And, and Lord, the, the meat that you have for us to chew on this morning would be wholesome and just feed us for the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Psalm 37, I'll be reading from the NIV. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a stack at the back and uh, my lovely assistants, John and Sean, will deliver a Bible to you, which you can keep on us if you would like to keep it. Put your name in the front, and it's yours. I'll gift to you because we think the Bible is something worth giving away. If you're on Zoom, unfortunately, they won't be delivering to you. But uh, the offer of free Bibles is there for you. If you get in touch, we can make sure you get a Bible at home. Uh, if no one else can deliver it, I'm sure I can get in my car and do that for you, unless you're miles away, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> There's caveats to everything. Right, uh, Psalm 37, let's read. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither, like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. 
A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow and bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts. Their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, and those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall For the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. If I'm not catching up on the screen, feel free to click it. can't remember where our verses break. (laughs) Uh, They're always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just, and he will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouths of the righteous utter wisdom, and their tongues speak what is just. The law of God is in their hearts. Their feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, intent on putting them to death. But the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked, Or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. A future awaits for those who seek peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. And he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. It's a long psalm, but there's a lot in there. There's a lot to wrestle with. But it's an important psalm for me because it is one of a series of passages within Scripture that highlight a paradigm shift in my theology that occurred over the last five years or so. And they've brought clarity to what we mean as Christians when we call something the gospel or we say this is good news. And it's brought, this, this paradigm shift has brought a clarity and a confidence with how I share my faith with others. 
Now, some of you may be aware of this shift in my thinking. There's a YouTube channel I created that shows it, but it's all wrapped up in God's judgment. But this shift is also connected with the hope that we have that's the opposite of God's judgment, the inheritance, the promise that we have as Christians for what happens after this life, but also in this life, the calling we have as Christians how are we following Jesus and how does that impact us now and those around us, the church, the community and what we call the kingdom of heaven, how that interacts with all these things. Now this psalm, one of King David's, compares the way of the righteous to that of the wicked and this is a major theme in book one of the psalms. Now psalms is a book of five books. The first 42 psalms are book one, and it starts off in Psalm 1 talking about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And this goes through all 42 psalms. If you listen to Sam's preach a couple of weeks ago, he had an acrostic psalm uh, for Psalm 112, which means each line starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I recommend listening to Sam's preach if you missed that one to hear why they do that. But Psalm 7 is one of these acrostics as well. So that's partly why it is that long, because it follows an alphabet. But it's also written in later on in David's life. We hear some wisdom coming out. He's moved on in years. He's, he's seen life, and he's writing from his experience of principles he's learned, not necessarily facts in all circumstances, but the general principles he's found throughout his life. And he's sharing that encouragement with the people of God, even when it looks like those principles are totally failing. So the psalm starts with a call to not fret because of evildoers or those who are evil. Um, Maybe you're a bit like me. Hopefully you're not, and... uh, you can get really worked up by the amount of suffering and injustice around us. Maybe you are like me. But hopefully you're not like me in this area, that you go on social media and get even more worked up. I mean, Twitter especially is built around calling people out, getting angry, making everyone else more angry, and continually that continuing that cycle of anger and just rage at all the injustice. Don't get me wrong, there is a time to be angry at injustice. There is a time when we can act against injustice. But social media generally isn't that place for it. The psalmist is calling us to not let our anger and frustration and sorrow even at the world to get the best of us, to consume our thoughts day and night, to control us. And this psalm points us to why and how we can move away from allowing this just information overload of all the woes in the world, how we can direct our thoughts elsewhere and find the way of peace. And so you might have noticed they're fairly obvious in the psalm, three themes that come through. You've got the promise of what the Lord will do, you've got the reminder of what the way of the wicked is, and what it looks like, and then you've got an exhortation to follow and do the way of the righteous. In explaining how to not fret, David calls us to trust the Lord. 
and throughout you'll see what the Lord does. I'm not going through this verse by verse, but hopefully you can spot the themes as I talk about them. And I'm going to start here because it's the most, you might have heard the repetition as I read it. What does it mean to inherit the land? Now, I grew up in a Christian family, and perhaps many of you did as well. I was a missionary kid. I was surrounded by Christians in Papua New Guinea. And it was assumed by most of us, though I don't remember a specific talk on it, there are a couple uh, resources shared every now and then, that as a Christian, I would go, go to heaven. And if I wasn't a Christian or if uh, anyone wasn't a Christian, they would go to hell. And that, the directions are there. They're up in heaven, down in hell. That's, that's how it was kind of assumed what would happen. And, and hell wasn't really talked about as a kind of a horrible place, maybe some flames, maybe uh, the devil with a pitchfork. That wasn't really explained. It was a horrible place. No one wanted to go there. It was filled with torments. But what was certain was that people would go there for eternity and experience eternity in this awful place. Are those pictures you recognize? They're definitely pictures in our culture and tradition and even in churches. I've seen videos. You type hell onto YouTube, you'll find churches preaching that very clearly that the gospel is about going to different locations. It's going to heaven, going to hell, and something about Jesus' death did something to get us out of hell into heaven. But what I found in the last four five years is it's really hard to find these pictures in scripture. Especially when you see a psalm that's talking about inheriting the land and something happening to the wicked. There's something more clear, something more hopeful, and hopefully as we uh, as I go through this, you'll start to see what that is. So it's not just the Old Testament. You might recognize this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or land. I'll explain that in a moment. Who says that? Jesus. Where? Where does he say it? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, is possibly the most famous set of teaching we have of Jesus's. It's long. Read it. Well, it's not that long. You can read it in a few minutes, Matthew 5 to 7. Read it this afternoon and let it change your life because that's what we should be living out as Christians is Matthew 5 to 7. So this isn't just about inheritance for Old Testament before Christ. This is also about inheritance through Christ. And there's something about land that is important. So let's go right back to Genesis 1. You'll remember we went through Genesis, if you've been part of this church for a few months, back in, uh, in January, wasn't it? It was this year. It wasn't last year feels like last year. There was, it was, we're still on Zoom, <laughs> still on YouTube. But the very first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But remember, Genesis is ancient. It's several thousand years old. And their idea of earth wasn't the globe seen from the moon. It was literally earth, dirt. And, and the Hebrew behind what we see as earth literally means dry land or dirt. And heavens isn't what we assume either. Heavens, we think of some, I don't know, medieval art, Renaissance art of clouds and babies and halos and harps and, and things like that. Well, that's not what they were thinking was. They're thinking is skies. Literally, the word means skies. 
the sky and the land means the entirety of everything in the ancient Hebrew thinking. The two, though, are meant to be together. Heavens and earth, sky and land are meant to be together. And if we recall the story of Genesis, that whole union of heaven and earth, kingdom of God, presence of God, humanity ruling, reigning together to subdue, to rule, to do everything God intended, fell apart through humanity breaking that relationship. The idea of partnering with God's kingdom is is set in Genesis 1, but it failed. And so the whole story of the Bible is God bringing about the kingdom of heaven through his promises, first with specific people like Noah and Abraham, and then with the nation, the nation of Israel, and then ultimately through Jesus and then through the church. And the mission is, as Jesus says, is to bring his kingdom near, to bring the kingdom to earth, to bring the skies to the land, to bring the heaven to earth. And we pray, Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what then does this have to do with inheriting the land? Well, the inheritance of the land is the promise God had for his people before Christ and now after Christ. We, through Christ, we are inheriting this land, this earth, where kingdom comes, restores this world, makes it new, and it becomes the garden that we see in Genesis 2. So let's look at that that imagery that's in this psalm. We see this idea of the garden in the imagery of the text. The wickedness, the wicked, are compared to grass and flowers that fade or go up in smoke. They're ultimately cut off from this land of life. But those who inherit the land dwell in it and enjoy safe pasture. Once you start seeing this garden imagery, it's all throughout the Psalms. You'll find it if you recognize Psalm 23. There's peace, prosperity, an inheritance that endures forever. There's life in all its fullness. So another difference here from what we often hear when when people talk about the gospel, it's no longer about us going away, being taken away from this earth. It's actually about restoration of this earth. It's a lot more earthy, (laughs) pun intended. Uh, It's vision of restoration. We see peace, justice, beauty, life. What you hope for suddenly becomes a little bit more real. At least that's what I found. This is the paradigm shift that I was talking about. I can, I found the idea of heaven quite boring. I'll, I'll be honest, I couldn't picture it. I couldn't picture clouds, babies, harps, standing around some, some things, singing the same things over and over and over and over again. It sounded really repetitive. But ultimately, our hope should move to seeing this earth made new, a new creation, restored. And that's what resurrection is all about. Going to heaven defeats the point of the resurrection. Jesus died, rose again, his body made new for this earth. He's ascended, but he will return, and we will have bodies like his when we are restored and resurrected. So we will die, we will be with him in heaven, but that's like a pit stop. We're waiting for ultimately to rise again in new bodies, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, new bodies made new, made so we can enjoy the presence of God without being consumed because we 
We have fallen and sin has corrupted us. We can't stand in God's presence without, without a body like Christ. So resurrection is a good news. Inheriting the land is the hope we can imagine. We see glimpses of it around us. When God's kingdom is working through the church, through the, the spirit of God moving in his people, when we see healings, we believe that in this church, that people can be healed. We don't see it enough. I'd love to see it more. Lord, help our unbelief. But when the Spirit of God is moving in his people through his church, we see the kingdom of heaven, the thing that we hope for, the new creation we can cling on to, rather than trying to imagine something else from a medieval painting. We have things in front of us, the image of God in each and every person in front of us. When they are made new in Christ, we see the kingdom of heaven. That's what we want to see, isn't it? This is good news. This is what we want to see. But there is another hope, one I've been wrestling with for a a few years. You might have caught a little bit of it in my introduction. But what happens to the wicked? Is this pit of fire and flame and torment, is that the image that David wants you to think in his psalm? I want to challenge your understandings hell and I want you to go away from here and wrestle because the Bible is the word of God each and every verse in it we must wrestle with the bits that make us uncomfortable and I believe if you wrestle well you will find hope even in the bits that challenge us the wicked are cut off from the land this is all the language the verses say they are altogether destroyed the swords that they use to bring down and oppress others will pierce their own hearts. Those that reject the life and wisdom of God that is on offer will fade away, will go up in smoke, will be no more. This isn't a language of a realm where people continue to be tormented forever. This is a far more more understandable and less fantastical image that we might see in the media and in culture. Sin and corruption are deadly serious. They are so serious that God will not keep them around in his new creation. He won't contain them in some pits, but he will remove them from existence altogether. The new creation will have no stain, no death, no pain, no mourning, no suffering, because God is just. This is good news, though there is a potential hesitation to jump to good news, and that is right. These verses should make us uncomfortable. We should wrestle with them because though we know God loves just, is just, and will not forsake his saints, God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. We hear that throughout scripture, but Peter, in his second letter, verse 3, 9, I think it's on the slides in a moment. There we go. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We should have hope that justice will be done, that sin will be no more, but we should also be careful in delighting in the death of the wicked. And we'll talk about who the wicked are in a moment, but... This is hope. The hope for us 
is that new creation will not have anyone that is called wicked. It will not have anyone that is causing suffering. It will not have anyone who is totally corrupt by sin. Those who dwell in these things that remain in opposition to God, the giver of life, will be judged by God and they will fade like grass. They will be consumed and only those found to be righteous will abide in abundant peace. And this is what I was talking about before, the paradigm shift, away from going away to something about this earth being made new that is hopeful and I can, I can see. I can also know that God's judgment is just. I can also know that God is not a torturer or a tormentor. He's not keeping the wicked around. But his eternal punishment is the eternal fire that consumes and makes an end of sin forever. This is repeated in one of the most famous verses in John 3. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the gospel is this. Life with Christ, immortality, new bodies, new creation, or reject the giver of life, and what do we face? Death. We perish. We cannot live in new creation, in God's presence, on our own terms. That is the gospel. We are all mortal. We are all headed to death. But Christ, I'm jumping ahead, has taken, has taken that death for us. So this leads us on to the next question. Who are the wicked and who are the righteous? Where does Jesus fit in with all of this? Well, again, let's look at the psalm. Who, who are the wicked? Well, they're those that are so offended by people who are righteous that they gnash their teeth at them. And if, like me, you've read a bit about God's judgment, gnashing their teeth comes up a bit in Jesus' teaching when he's talking about those who are judged as enemies of God. And it's often, unfortunately, interpreted as, because we have all this preconceived idea of what judgment is, we think it's a sign of pain. But actually, it's anger here, isn't it? It's clearly anger. They are angry at the righteous because... They're righteous. They're living in a way that offends them. They, they see righteous living and they get angry and they plot against them and they seek to kill them. They want to slay the righteous. We see it happening in the world. People are so offended by Christians living out the kingdom of God that they actually face death. We see it in Afghanistan, we see it in Pakistan, we see it in India, we see it All over the world, we have the body of Christ under attack because they are living the way of Christ. Those who are wicked will oppress the poor and needy. They are the opposite of generous. They hoard even that which they have borrowed. They promote themselves, spreading out like a tree, even if it means being ruthless and unethical. Now, interestingly, thinking about trees, Psalm 1 talks about the righteous man that's planted by a stream of water, and it's an oak of righteousness. This is, this is not that. This is like the antithesis of that. This is like a tree that's forced itself to grow with ruthless means, conquering others, but ultimately it will die. It will be no more. And, and so when we talk about the wicked, often we can go, oh, I know someone like that. I know someone who's, who's not given me back my money, who's borrowed and, and, and not 
uh, returned it. Sorry if I've still got your books. Um, but the, we, we can jump to that conclusion, can't we? Oh, I know someone like that. That, that guy, that thing is wicked. And I jumped to Afghanistan straight away. There's, there is wickedness there, don't get me wrong. But we can immediately go to someone else. They're like that. They need to hear this word. Let me send them the link. We all know, especially when we look at people in positions of power and influence, there seems to be someone who's getting by really well but living with no conscience. And it winds us up and we go on Twitter and call them out. Is that how we should respond? How do the righteous respond to this? Now, in all this, there is a place for seeking justice. There's a place to cry out to God for our brothers and sisters (laughs) who are persecuted. But that anger and frustration, especially in the wrong place, can only lead to just recurring anger and causing others to fret. No, we're not called to fret. I'm going to use that as much as possible. I just like the word fret. We don't use it enough. But we're not called to fret. Don't get yourselves or others worked up by another's misdeeds. Don't be envious that these people have positions of power and influence despite what they've done to get there. We're called as Christians to take responsibility for ourselves. You might recognize if you read Matthew 5 to 7 recently... There is a bit in Jesus' teaching that's that's very much about this. And he he makes it a comical scene. He's like, don't worry about the speck in your own eyes. Worry about a massive plank that's sticking out of yours and hitting everyone else. (laughs) Just focus on that first before you start worrying about everyone else. Take responsibility for your own walk. Focus on the promises of God that has given to us and doing what righteous people do. What do righteous people do? They trust in the Lord. They do good. They dwell in the land. That's kind of what I was talking about with the kingdom of heaven. They delight in the Lord. They commit their way to the Lord. They are still and wait patiently for the Lord. They refrain from anger and wrath. They are generous and lend freely. They keep the law of God in their hearts. They're content with the little that they have. They are meek. What does meek mean? (laughs) Being meek often means that person sitting meekly in the corner, that person that's a walkover, that, that person that's totally weak. But again, let's look to Jesus and see what the definition of meekness is. We're told to mark the blameless and upright, as the ESV says, to watch them. And Jesus was both blameless and upright. So let's learn from him. He had the power of God on his side, the legions of angels at his side, but he chose not to retaliate when he was arrested. So it's not to retaliate when he was tortured or executed because he knew that wasn't the way God had chosen for him. And he instead was obedient to God even to death, laying down his life and in so doing conquered death for all of us. Now meekness isn't a weakness. It's about understanding that you have the power to do something but choosing that the way of God is far better than your own path, the own, your own way of doing things. I've heard meekness defined as strength under control, but weak people can be meek. <laughs> you don't have to have the ability to respond. To be meek 
But it's understanding that you have God's way rather than your own way. So what does this look like for us today? And again, let's go back to Matthew 5 that that links us to the psalm. What does Jesus say about what makes someone liable for judgment? It isn't just about those who slay or oppress others. Jesus takes the standards up a notch. What does he say about anger and lust? So even if you think these things, you're liable for judgment. If you call your brother a fool, you're liable for judgment. These are extremely different standards from what we're used to. And we try to make excuses for Jesus. No, Jesus couldn't mean that. No, Jesus does mean that. It is impossible for us to make ourselves righteous. So the psalmist is saying, yes, there's these wicked people. Yes, these are righteous people. But how do we find ourselves to be righteous? There's only one way to find ourselves to be righteous. Jesus shows that we need a saviour. His mission was to forgive sins. It says in Matthew 1, that's, that's his, his name as well. Je- Jesus means God saves. He is to save his people from, his, from their sins. The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the books in the New Testament, continues to highlight this in the earliest Christian to deep words, Christian teachings that through repentance and baptism, the follower of Jesus dies. Dies to their self, goes under the water, that's the grave, and then they come out repentant, alive, made new in Christ. If you haven't been baptized, do it. (laughs) This is what we should be doing as Christians because it is the very act of that that symbolizes our regeneration as Christians, that we die to ourselves, are made alive in Christ, and it's the only way we are made righteous because Christ was the only righteous human and he died, and so it's in his death and his resurrection that we can be made new. And Paul continues this imagery of, he uses the imagery of slavery, because that was common in the time of Rome, as you hopefully know, and to argue that all, all of us, all of us are slaves to sin. But now when we die to ourselves and are risen with Christ, we are slaves, we're literally chained to righteousness. And at the end of his argument in Romans 6, Paul says this, when you were slaves to sin, You were free from the control of righteousness. Righteousness couldn't touch you. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Being meek means that while we have the power to choose our own way, God has given us that free will, we instead choose the way of Christ. That's what being meek means. Choosing the way of Christ, even if that means persecution, 
personal sacrifice or even death. We choose to have mercy, to show kindness, to love our enemies, even those we're thinking about when I hear the word wicked. We pray for them, we love them. Because even the wicked have the image of God in them. We speak truth in love, not scoring points in a debate, but winning people over to see that the kingdom of heaven is where God's people live like Jesus. They love like Jesus. They are united. There is unity in the body. It's such a shame that that's not what churches often look like. We choose to be generous so that not only those who can join within the congregation can be blessed and not be begging for bread, as the psalmist says, but that even those outside of the church who may well be begging for bread can know that the righteous are generous and love them and care for them and want to do good. Because that is what the righteous do, after all. And when we are falsely accused, when our righteousness offends others, and our reputation is brought into disrepute because of Jesus, that's important, (laughs) because of Jesus, our reputation is brought into disrepute, we trust that God will vindicate us and not leave us condemned. God is our judge. We live like this because we know that God has rescued us even while we were his enemies. While we were still in sin, deserving of death, he continued to show grace and mercy and forgiveness to us, bringing us out of the pit into life. And when we fail, when there is shame, when there is guilt, when we feel disgraced, when we feel powerless, when we are living in fear, salvation comes from our God, removes our shame, clothes us in righteousness, allows us to be welcomed in to the presence of God because he is our salvation, not ourselves. Nothing I do, even a good I do, often comes with a taint of sin. But because I am in Christ, I know that I can say my Redeemer lives. And hopefully you can amen to that. Salvation comes from our God. He is our refuge and deliverer, as the psalmist says. So where do we go from here? Some of you will just have loads of questions. Some of you are here because you're invited or your family's here. And you just... Okay, Christianity sounds a little bit out there. We're talking about restored earth, someone dying and rising again. This is all a little bit crazy. I've got loads of questions. That's great. Uh, We believe that Christianity can hold up to the deepest scrutiny, the hardest questions taught with us. We want to hear those questions. Your questions are welcome here. For some of you, though, it might be that you need to do what the psalmist says right at the beginning, that you need to commit your way to the Lord. You have not taken responsibility for your walk with Jesus. You're relying on the faith of the spouse, the faith of friends, the routine of coming to church on a Sunday to be able to call yourself a Christian. And now it's time to commit. Commit yourself to following the way of Jesus. Commit yourself to becoming meek like Jesus 
submitting your own life to Jesus' calling. And if this is you, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'll pray for you in a moment. But this is a lifelong journey, not just a one-off prayer. And so uh, we want to talk to you because that's what being a disciple, a follower of Christ is, is we, we help each other as a body of Christ to walk this road when it's extremely tough, when life happens to you, where faith just dries up for a period of time. This is where we find the fire that reignites us, where the Spirit of God moves. It's not just our church, there are other great churches in Guildford, but we believe that is happening here, and we are grateful that many of you have seen that and are joining us as well. For others of you, what I've said has actually really rattled you, Uh, and you're like, Phil, you're, you're an annihilationist, you're kind of crazy and wacky and maybe heretical. The teachings today on God's judgment, I've raised some big questions. They do. They did for me. That's why I spent four or five years and are still reading Scripture to figure out if this is really what Scripture says. Now, I'm also reading those I disagree with. So please do disagree with me and have a conversation. Dig into Scripture. Find out what God is saying to us through His Scripture. Don't rely on traditions and assumptions and crazy media movies about hell and Satan. Satan doesn't rule hell it's a place prepared for him. He's in there. He's being punished himself. It's that this is stuff that there's good news in that. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But I, I hope that this morning has brought more clarity and light, a willingness to dig deep into even the most uncomfortable passages of Scripture. If you, if you need it, there is a, a cafe theology we did on hell uh, a, few, a couple years back now where it does a deeper dive on the whole of Scripture as to where I, I've come out and the different views within the church, not just the one where I've found myself to be. But some of you need to listen to Chris's word this morning. Some of you are just, I need help. Some of you are there. Some of you aren't quite feeling when I say that there's these promises. They're a little bit too distant future for you. Or in the the way that Christ is, a little bit in the distant past for you, that you haven't connected with God's Spirit for a long time, and it's tough, it's dry. I'm there with you. I I feel you. The cry of help is humbling, but it's ultimately the, the most powerful part of the Christian experience. We need our Savior. We can't do this without him. And so for all of us, all of us, we need to respond to what God is saying this morning. We need to repent where we have failed to trust God, where we have failed to do good, and even where we just can't delight in the Lord at the moment. We need to come to a place where we recognize our need for a Savior, we fall on our knees and we say, help Life is tough. Being righteous in an unrighteous world is tough. And the way that the world is going, it's not going to get any easier. So, become a Christian. (laughs) Follow Jesus. Because it actually, ultimately, is the best way to live, even in the face of a life that is filled with pain. So, worship team, can we come up? It's been a bit heavy. Hopefully that was enough to chew on for a little while. I want to take a moment while the band plays.
before any more words are said or sung, that you have a moment just to recommit, to figure out where you might be on any of those things. Maybe if you're asking all these questions and you just don't know if you believe, well, let me challenge you to pray. Just pray a simple prayer. Pray what Chris said. Pray, pray help. I need help to understand. I need help to figure out if this is actually true or not. For the rest of us, let's, let's pray and recommit ourselves to Ready for you to roll when you want to start tinkling. That these promises are true because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We can hope for a new creation where everything is made new. So we're going to just have a, like a minute or two of just some gentle tinkling. Thank you for your word that it challenges us, that it's relevant to today. Lord, help us to take hold of the promise that we have, the power of Christ's death and resurrection, this hope of new life, the world made new. Lord, would your spirit move amongst us now as we close this time together in a time of worship, would you pour out your spirit on us? Lord, may we be refreshed. May we find our rest in you. Lord, would you move amongst us, help us to see more of your kingdom here. Lord, where people are hurting, where people are physically hurting, mentally hurting, Lord, would you bring healing go from this place, we'll take a a bit of heaven with us, where our questions and our doubts and our wrestlings, would you bring peace, would you bring clarity, would you bring hope, for those who may be starting out on this journey of following you, would you just bring light and love into their lives now. Let them know that they are made in your image. Let them know that they are children of the Most High. Lord, bring your peace. Bring your hope. 
worthy of our worship. May we worship you now. In Jesus' name. Amen.